medicinal cannabis and associated responsible patient care requires up-to-date knowledge in the current Australian medical landscape. United in Compassion will be holding their next symposium at Tweed Heads, New South Wales from the 22nd to the 24th of March, 2019. FX Medicine Live will be proudly attending and of course be conducting interviews with all the leading experts in the field. For more information and to book your tickets, please go to unitedincompassion.com.au. This is FX Medicine. I'm Andrew Whitfield-Cook. Joining us on the line today is Anna Sangster. In her clinical work, Anna helps both men and women overcome reproductive health issues at all stages of life, from menstrual disorders, fertility issues, through to menopause. Anna began her career in naturopathy in Sydney, working at Holistic Healthcare, a centre that specialised in family healthcare and the treatment of children. It was at Holistic Healthcare that Anna began her journey into paediatric naturopathy whilst also training in the area of reproductive health. It was after the birth of her first child that Anna returned to Perth, Western Australia, to set up her own clinic called Perth Health and Fertility to combine her two main interests. Anna is presently doing a master's degree in reproductive medicine through the University of New South Wales. And I'd like to welcome you back to FX Medicine. Anna, how are you? Good, thank you, Angie. How are you? I'm great, thank you. Now, we're going to be talking about something often skipped over because it's one of those sort of taboo subjects, and that's male fertility. We, we tend to sort of always, uh, whether it's blame or whether it's automatically assume that it's got to do with the woman, I think first we need to delve a little bit into your career. Tell us about how your career began and how you chose to specialise in fertility management. Well, I was super lucky as a student in that I got a job at Holistic Healthcare actually um, working the dispensary there. And the principal naturopath at the time um, took it upon herself to pretty much train me in um, doing a lot of fertility work. So I would sit in and observe all of her cases. And I did that for my last three years of um, studying. And then um, I went straight into working with her. And then I decided to do the natural fertility management course. It was a residential course at the time offered by Francesca Nash, which was life-changing. It was, it was a really interesting, really fantastic course. And then I was lucky enough to be invited to join Francesca. So I then started work at um, the Jocelyn Centre and I was mentored at the time by Francesca and also by um, Susan Arendt. So it was it was an incredible experience for mm. a young naturopath at the time. And that belies the importance of mentorship, which you and I have spoken about previously. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> Is there any specific area in which you just automatically tend to see more patients than others? Well, um, at my clinic now, we do, I would say, probably about 50% just fertility. So it's either couples who are struggling to conceive and have used IVF and it hasn't worked, or couples that are hoping to explore natural conception, and that would be the majority of what we see. We obviously also see a lot of people on either end of the reproductive spectrum, so young girls with issues or women going through menopause, 
But we are seeing just more and more male fertility cases. Yeah. So hence my interest in that area. Have the types of fertility cases that you commonly see changed over the last, what, 16 odd years? Well, I think definitely. I think what you said in your intro was incredibly true where more and more, you know, the the people that sit in front of you, there is the assumption that it's a woman's woman's fault. Mm. And I think the media really do a good job in that, in building up, you know, the ageing egg and women are getting older. But I think what we see more in, in walking through our door is younger couples, which is worrying in itself, but more and more younger couples. And the man sits in front of you and we, all of our couples have to do a semen analysis when they, when they join us. And I think, you know, it's always a surprise for the man, but more commonly predictable that there will be a sperm problem. So um, I think you probably read that really interesting study that came out last year the, from Dr. Heidi Levin. And it was looking at the, um, it was a comprehensive meta-regression analysis right? Um, between 73 and 2011. Yep. And it showed a, about a 50% decline in um, sperm counts. And it, what was really interesting was it included Australian men in that, into Australian studies. And it was, it was so, so um, telling that, yes, in front of us, we are seeing a really marked decline in male fertility. Now, that was a study regarding sperm counts. Is that correct? That's right. So it looked at research between 1973 and 2011, and it really showed that in Western men, there's been this sort of marked decline in um, count. But it, what, I think what's really interesting is it wasn't the first, it's not, certainly not the first time this research has come up. So as far back as 1992, there was a study also published in the British Medical Journal by Carlson, and he showed decreased sperm counts in the preceding 50 years. But I think from the, the, the one from oh. um, Dr. Levine, what was really interesting was it was looking at men that were unselected for fertility issues. So often the, when we're looking at, you know, um, pools of men, they're often men in fertility centres because they're having, you know, struggles with conception. By sample but, size. Is that right? But this, this research was done on men not selected for fertility. So hmm. it's a sort of bog standard men across the society. And we're seeing this marked decline in sperm count. Previous research also showed this over the previous 50 years? Yes. Yes, it's been shown quite quite often, but there's always controversy with these studies. So, mm. you know, they're always saying it's not a, and, and that's totally fantastic because it provokes, you know, um, debate. But often these studies um, are looking at certain groups of men within society. Right. So this most recent one was sort of so broad that it really did highlight a decline in sperm count. Ah, so forgive me. So the previous research was a, a biased sample. Well, no, actually the Carlson one wasn't. I think you'll find that that was non-selected, but it was... I think when 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 you start looking at an entire population of, with a declining sperm count, I think there's always it always raises debate yeah. and controversy. So the, the more recent one was fantastic in that I think it's now a bit more universally accepted that we'd really have an issue with male fertility. What are the current theories regarding the decline in male fertility? What what do they think it's caused by? I remember one old one thinking about like population density and perhaps pheromones. Um, there's also um, phthalates and things like that in our environment. Well, that's actually what Dr. Levin brought to the public attention. And if you listen to any of his, his interviews right now, he's a real advocate for saying, look, one of the biggest issues that's linked to declining male fertility is our exposure to phthalates and pesticides. Yeah. And I think this is, you know, when we're talking about a, pe- you know, a penny dropping moment or, a, you know, a changing moment, I think what, what's so um, interesting is the time frame in which these chemicals are thought to have their biggest impact. Mm. So although infertility is considered to be an adult problem because the chap sitting in front of you in consultation is a male adult saying, well, goodness, I've got, no, I've got very low sperm counts. 
what we're actually finding or what the research looks like it's pointing towards is that the impact is possibly in utero. So all the way back in the very beginning, we're looking at when the foundations of spermatogenesis are actually being laid in that young fetus, we may be seeing the impact of phthalates there, which is very worrying. Where's the exposure of phthalates coming for in utero? I'm aware of like phthalates, you know, they'll ban now, the old rubber ducky. And that's obviously in kids <laughs> and you're thinking about a hot bath with a, a male child, but that's after they're born. When we're talking about in utero, what's happening? So, well, there's lots of different sources of phthalates in our environment. So, yes, in um, certain children's products in certain countries, they have been banned. But then phthalates are also um, wonderful at, at being used in personal care products for adhering smell to the skin. So pregnant women who walk into my clinic covered in fake tans with hairspray on, smelling of perfume, they're just sort of a, a bit of a cocktail of phthalates at the yeah, time. So yeah. they're looking at, um, and, and, and the research is really, really interesting, and, and I'd love to go through it with you because it looks, I think for naturopaths, it's that aha moment of going, wow, there's this window of opportunity here where we can really make a difference, not just to the chap in front of us, but to his offspring. Yeah. So I think it's... um. It's a potentially really exciting area for naturopaths. So what we're looking at is this window mm. of, of uh, so when when sperm and egg meet, for example, we either have an XX female gen, genetic sex or an XY male genetic sex. But in utero, at that point in time, we're all said to be bipotential. So we can either develop male genitalia or female genitalia. And to, for an XY genetic male, to head in the direction of making male genitalia, we need to make sure that there's enough testosterone presence. Yep. So if we go back and have a look at what happens with that testes differentiation, we what happens is we start making these cells called the Sertoli cells, and they start producing and, and differentiating. We then make the Leydig cells, the fetal Leydig cells, and they start making testosterone. And the most important thing that happens right there is that testosterone stimulates the proliferation of those Sertoli cells. And what they found, or what we think from animal studies and from and different studies on humans, is that the number of Sertoli cells we make in this fetal window will be a really great determinant of how much sperm we can make as an adult. So it's really important that that process of Sertoli cell differentiation is not interrupted. So we need adequate testosterone stimulation to not allow that process to be interrupted. And... Any, so, so if, you, if we go back, there's, there's actually that a theory that there's three pockets or three windows in a in a young in a man's life where we start with a different where we start making more Sertoli cells. So we've got a really big issue in fetal life. That's when we start making them. Immediately after we're born, there's this other area time of um, Sertoli cell proliferation, and once again, just prior to puberty, and then that's it. It's done dealed. It's a locked in thing. Done dealed. You've got how many how many cells that can make sperm in your body. And so it's really important that that process isn't interrupted. And I think that that's where we're seeing the impact of, that, of the phthalates is that because they have that anti-antigen effect, they can really affect our Sertoli cell differentiation and the ability of the Leydig cells to function properly. So we're talking counts here. What about morphology? So at, at this point in um, the development of the fetus, they're actually talking about count. So Sertoli cells, so the number of Sertoli cells, they actually talk about um, it's an indicator of your ability to make sperm. Mm -hmm. It's also linked to um, testicle size. So the, the number of Sertoli cells you make is one of the reasons, that's one of the reasons urologists have those wonderful little beads, I don't know if you've ever seen them, which 
um, they compare to male testicles because this, when you have um, very small testicles, the assumption is you have a very low number of Sertoli cells. And when you have lovely big testicles, the assumption is that you ha- often have a greater sperm-making capacity because you have more Sertoli cells. Okay, so you mentioned about the, this window of opportunity that naturopaths have. What can naturopaths do to intervene in this sort of important area in utero? Well, I think if we understand that what happens in utero has such a profound effect on the fertility of that that next generation of the child being born, I think then we can start helping and educate our patients to start seeing that they have this phenomenal ability to influence the, the health and reproductive capacity of their own offspring. So we do a lot of education in our clinic where we're looking at and and teaching our um, patients about endocrine-disrupting chemicals, and particularly in this context about the impact that phthalates have in utero. And I think that that's the key. So it's it's interesting because some of the studies that we talk about are um, done by people linked to IVF clinics, but we never have patients coming in saying, oh, yeah, of course my, my IVF doctor told me to minimise my exposure to perfumes, aftershaves, deodorants, to, you know, certain chemicals in my house. And I think that that's the role that naturopaths can play is that sort of wonderful educator role where we can help women identify and help men as well identify their exposure to phthalates and start working out how to reduce it. Can I also ask, Anna, that we're speaking about fetal formation here and malformation. Um, You mentioned previously that there's three windows of opportunity, if you like. Can we help a newborn child if there is issues? I I, I guess that might be an issue. What about puberty? Can we intervene then? That's an interesting question because they do talk about an irreversible and a reversible impact of phthalates. So the irreversible impact is generally prior to the child being born. So you either make those Sertoli cells and, and allow for that you know, differentiation and proliferation of the Sertoli cells, or if that process is interrupted, then we result in, you know, in a lower number of Sertoli mm, cells. Mm. But the reversible area comes in when, once a child's born and in those windows of opportunity. So we've got just after birth and pre-puberty, we can do everything we can then to reduce exposure. And obviously when, you know, a man's looking at, you know, um, trying to have a child, then we can again teach him how to reduce his exposure to to factors that can reduce our androgens in our body or have an anti-androgen effect. Yeah. And and would you have like a cumulative deleterious effect to, uh, you know, if the child that's already been exposed to phthalates had future exposure to phthalates and then his offspring might be even worse affected? I don't know. They do talk about a transgenerational effect, yeah. but I, I think the great thing that we can help our patients learn is that they they don't phthalates are ubiquitous, and that's their problem. But they are they don't have a very long half life in our body. So if we do minimise our exposure, we do minimise their impact. Right. So it's just that unfortunately most people don't know how to minimise their exposure. We've mentioned sperm counts. What yep. about things like morphology? What about things like the effect? on birth um, with things like hypospadias or um, hyp- penile size? That's a fantastic example because um, there is, it, it, it looks globally like, like there is an increasing incidence of hypospadia. So just so everyone knows, that's when the um, urethral opening is for the penis is not at the end of the penis. Mm. And it can be anywhere along the shaft of the penis or even in the scrotum. So it's actually um, a very common genital urinary tract um, deformity. It's very common, but it does seem to be having increase 
in incidents, which is an issue. Right. And it's often also associated with that condition called cordy, which is when the penis has a bend in it. Um, and it's also often associated with cryptorchidism, so that's um, when the testicles don't descend. Yep. And both of those are definitely linked, well, both of those are thought to be linked to phthalate exposure. Gotcha. And there's more and more research coming out that um, the severity of the forms of hypospadias, so imagine a young boy being born and the opening to his penis or the urethral opening where urine's meant to come out and where sperm is meant to come out is actually found in the testicles. Mm-hmm. So I know, and so um, it can be corrected. It can be corrected with surgery, but um, well, you've got long-term can, effects, haven't you? Well, it does, and also they talk about the less psychological effects if it's corrected earlier. So a boy can, sit, you know, doesn't have to sit to urinate, and he can, um, you know, he doesn't have um, psychological problems due to you know the shape and size and look of his penis. But um, it can also have longer-term fertility effects, if but mainly only the very severe forms have longer-term fertility effects. Yeah. Yeah, but but those two conditions or those three conditions are actually are thought to be linked to phthalate exposure in utero. So when that penis, when when it's developing, it really needs good androgen stimulation for correct development. And if we have chemicals like phthalates that may interfere with that process, we do end up potentially with increased incidence of genital urinary tract deformity. Can I ask here? Um, so are we only talking about phthalates, or are there other? culprits that we need to be aware of? Well, that's a good question. It's, the, the reason that I was particularly interested in phthalates is only because it has so things like certain endocrine-disrupting chemicals have an estrogenic effect, whereas phthalates are specifically thought to, one of the ways they act is to have an anti-androgen effect. And it's just in this window of opportunity or this window of development that, um, that the, this, it's so important to have testosterone and or, or androgen secretion, and when we have that anti-androgen effect, that's when we start seeing the, the really um, deleterious effect of the phthalates. Right. But but they also and it was, I was reading a really interesting. Um, I'm not sure. I was listening to an interesting um, podcast, and they were looking at the impact. And this is throwing um, a big scary one out there, but they were looking at the impact that possibly paracetamol is having on on these sorts of problems as well in utero. And they were saying, does it potentially have a, a phthalate-like action? Oh. So lot, what you were saying before is there are actually lots of different chemicals in the environment and different chemicals man-made as well that um, can have a really big impact on on genital urinary tract formation at that really sort of vulnerable window. We're seeing, you know, we're seeing an increased incidence of those conditions, like you mentioned, hypospadias. So, um, so we're looking at. Um, an incidence now of anywhere between 1 in 150 to 1 in 250 boys being born with these sorts of conditions. So, you know, it is um, fairly prevalent. Mm. And I think it is something that, you know, probably deserves more attention. And if we're looking at phthalates as playing a role, then the great thing is with education, phthalates can be avoided. Is there one set effect, if you like, from being exposed to phthalates all throughout or at different times during pregnancy, or do you get different effects during different developmental periods? So, well, there is considered um, certain times in a woman's pregnancy when we are, or when male fetuses are more vulnerable to the negative impact on phthalates. So, um, and this is obviously from animal studies. So from rodent studies, they've found what's called a fetal masculization programming window. And in humans, that's thought to be somewhere between about nine and 14 weeks gestation. So if we, and and this is where some of the confusion from some of the studies on phthalates actually comes into play, because if you 
do longitudinal studies and you do you know urinary metabolites and you measure them at let's say 20 weeks gestation and 30 weeks gestation then you can't correlate that with um you know deformities in or the genital urinary tract deformities that might be occurring in the first trimester mm, mm. so what so that's where you know it's really important when we read these studies that we understand what's happening as to what what um, may cause certain certain problems. So there is um, in the in the eight to nine week area time of gestation, there that's where they think there's going to be um, the really big impact of phthalates in terms of the potential for hyperspadias. Whereas penile width, they look at it more being a bit later on, and so in the second trimester. And can researchers measure these levels of androgens in a first trimester fetus? Well, what they actually do is there's certain markers that they take as to um, show us about androgen exposure. So one of the big ones is that anogenital distance. So um, male fetuses have a, a far greater anogenital distance than female fetuses because it's linked to androgens. So the more androgens we have, the, 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 the longer that anogenital distance. But And so that's used commonly in research in human studies and in animal studies to be a marker for androgen exposure in the first trimester. So if we have lower levels of androgen exposure or we're high um, exposure to phthalates, then the male fetus is, or that the, the baby being born has a much shorter anogenital distance, which tells the researcher that there's been something's interrupted that antigen exposure. So we, we've spoken about other culprits. What about phthalate exposure causing other things than hyperspadias and things? It is, it's linked to, obviously, what we were talking about before is, um, you know, any, in lots of genital unitrack issues. It's also linked to, and, and these are studies that, um, you know, I think have a long way to go, but they're really interesting in that there have been studies linked to um, in utero phthalate exposure, to poorer infant executive functioning, to attention issues, to motor reflex issues, and also to conditions such as allergies and asthma. So on the whole, really a good thing to be trying to avoid. Absolutely. Yes. So what about further research in this area? Like this is... Like this is a hot topic. This is, you could go anywhere with this. I know. Um, so there's some, been some really fascinating studies. So there was a Tides study, which is a multi-centre study, and I think it's it's a really interesting read. And it basically looks at um, it examines common chemicals in household products, in foods, in cosmetics, and then it looks at. So it's really interested in in mother's exposure to, to the child, to, to for the child in utero, and then they're looking at markers of children's health and development. So um, I think they had about 753 mother-baby pairs in the analysis, yeah. and it, it, it doesn't just measure um, it doesn't just measure genital urinary tract issues. It measures everything, and it's right. it's really worth a read. But um, it definitely came back yet again, showing exposure to phthalates reduces anogenital and anoscrotal distance, was linked to reduced penile width reduced testicular volume, is often also looked at as being an issue for placental damage. So, you know, it's the studies the studies are fascinating and ongoing into this area. There was also a Western Australian study. Was Rain's study, is that right? That's it. Yeah? Yeah. What's the main sort of focus or thrust of that? Well the Rain study was really interesting because um, the Rain study was um, one of the one of the key authors was Professor Hart, which is so local to he's from one of the fertility labs in Western Australia, which is always interesting when you read um, anything to do with um, Western Australia in the research. And they were looking. That's a, it, and this has showed you how long this has been a problem. 
because their study, I think, started over 20 years ago. Wow. And I know. So it's not, this isn't new stuff. This has been going on for ages. But unfortunately, I just don't think it's being disseminated enough no. and, and quickly enough into the population saying, you know what, you can do something here. So that study started about 20 years ago and they actually measured, they were measuring, um, and unfortunately with that study, and one of the things they do say in that study is one of the limitations is at that time, they were measuring phthalates as um, in, in the serum, whereas now they're more commonly measured in as urinary metabolites. Right. But um, even then, the research is still saying these phthalates are causing a problem. And now the young boys that have been born, I think they're in, they're about 22, and they're looking at the impact of maternal phthalate exposure. And bear in mind, this is 20 odd years ago, to um, looking at their associations now with sperm counts and, and anogenital distance and testicular volume and whatnot. Urinary metabolites, obviously, are those things that are being metabolized out of the body and being excreted. So if you're catching what's coming out, do they correlate with serum levels, with what's in the body? So that's what they said. I, generally, they do to an extent, but I think that it's generally considered better now to look at the urinary metabolites rather than the, rather than the markers. Because it's non-invasive or...? No, actually, um, I'd have to go back and have a little bit of study, but they actually were talking about some of the different reasons why it's harder to capture it in the serum than it is in the oh, urine. Oh, Okay. That's interesting. So, so I think what was interesting is so Professor Hart's from Fertility Specialists of Western Australia, and um, I think it's so exciting when you have people from, you know, sort of doctors from fertility centres looking at this impact of, phth- of phthalates and saying, "Wow, do you know what? This might be this might be one of the big causes, or this might be a cause, potential cause, or a contributing cause of fertility issues in men today." And I think that. It might be the beginning of fertility labs starting to educate their their patients, saying, "You know what? We can do more than this. We can actually not just help you overcome your fertility issues, but hopefully help you have children that don't have fertility issues that mm. are making, you know, are having adequate Sertoli cell proliferation, and you know, you so therefore the next generation has a better chance rather than declining male fertility." By waiting until these couples visit a fertility clinic, though, is that early enough to be able to change the future? Or do we really need to be, as naturopaths, doing our thing that we've been doing for decades about toxicity? Like, is this really the the key where naturopaths can fit in? Well, you know, I think um, one thing that Francesca Nace used to say is what we need to do is prevent a downward evolutionary spiral. And hopefully with doing preconception care, what we're doing is creating an upward evolutionary spiral. Mm. And I think I remember that from 20 years ago. And I think that, you know, it was it's it's what really what we need to be working on. So I think, you know, there's a much greater community understanding now that alcohol in pregnancy is a problem. I think more and more people are recognizing that obesity in pregnancy has potential, you know, really negative effects for offspring. And I think now is a time where we need that sort of greater awareness in the community that, wow, phthalate exposure may have a really negative long-lasting effect on, you know, male fertility. And I think that if, as an naturopath, I think there's a phenomenal role that we can play in um, helping couples to recognize their exposure and how to reduce it. And hilariously, I think in, in clinical practice, the minute you start talking to a couple about you know, trying to avoid their baby being born with hypospadias or a short or small penis or a bent penis, very quickly the male, you know, the, 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 yes. the man in the, rela- in the relationship, he's on board. He's ready to do anything to, yeah. <laughs> to, 
to not allow that to be the problem. Yeah, which and is interesting, about, isn't it? It is. It's, it, it shows what motivates us. And um, the same with the woman. I think if, if you start talking about, you know, you want to be a grandparent, let's look after your child in, in utero, then I think it's really easy to inspire and encourage these couples to start making life changes because as soon as they can start seeing that these potential, you know, these chemicals are potentially having this massive negative impact on their hormones and on their potential for genital urinary tract deformities, you know, reducing if they can reduce their exposure, I think these couples jump on board really quickly. Pointedly showing the longer foresight of females versus males. <laughs> <laughs> That's it. And, you know, Andrew, when we talk about that other window, when we're talking about how Sertoli cell proliferation, we see it in fetal life, we see it just after birth, and we see it in, pre, in, in that sort of pre-puberty area. Yeah. I think that one thing that really motivates me is I've got two boys, and when they come home talking about, you know, the Rexona wars in the gym change rooms. They're what? <laughs> Rexona wars. So spraying deodorant at each other. Thankfully, my boys hopefully oh don't do God. that. But I know, and, and this is that time when boys are starting to quaff, they're starting to wear these products, and I think we have this issue of going of educating them and saying, now is not the time to be using chemicals that may have a, a, an anti-androgen effect. Mm. So that education, I think, as naturopaths, I think we have a phenomenally important role. And and we really go to town in our clinic with discussing, you know, about the, the research into um, personal care products, about storing food in plastics. There's some really interesting study about phthalate, phthalate levels and um, eating out. And people that eat out more or people that eat out in um, takeaway fast food restaurants have a much, much higher phthalate exposure. Eating out or so, eating from takeaway? So takeaway is the biggest disaster. Yeah, yeah. But couples that eat out versus couples that eat home-cooked meals also had a higher level of exposure. Yeah. So just teaching, you know, it's not, this isn't like teaching, you know, asking patients to jump through hoops. Mm. It's asking patients to have a, a gentle look at their personal care products and providing alternatives and, you know, looking at the sorts of food storage containers that they're using and, um, you know, their person, you know, what's happening around the house with exposure to, you know, um, vinyl floorings and shower curtains and, you know, the, the raincoat that they brought their child, you know, those sorts of things. So looking at plastics in their home environment and starting to change them. And and I think the, the really wonderful thing is, is then you've got these, people who give birth to children and they're already more conscious of what they're exposing their next, you know, their, their children to when they are born. The, the couple that would come in and sit in front of us who've been trying for five years, they might both be smelling of either aftershave or perfume. They might be sitting there with their takeaway coffee cup or their plastic water bottle. They, you know, have just washed and shampooed their hair. They've got their deodorant on, their makeup. You know, they've driven there in their brand new car that's off-gassing. They're sitting yes. there with their muffin wrapped up in plastic in their, you know, their handbag for, for morning tea. And they have no understanding that this sort of continual thing that they do every single day may be having a really negative impact on their potential for reproduction. So I think that, you know, there's just simple things that make a really big difference. Yeah. And I think that that's where naturopaths can come into their own. And ignore the simple activities. You know, if you get a new car, it's not like you're going to not get a new car because of that concern. What about opening the windows when you get into the car? You know, like I these know. really simple activities that we just don't understand. That's I where I think our, the sort of naturopaths can really play a great part in reducing overall exposure. Do you know one other area of phthalate exposure, which I think is really quite alarming and quite worrying, is when we're looking at um, phthalates added to the PVC plastics in medical equipment. So it's a really big issue because a young baby born premature is possibly going to be 
you know, on a number of medical devices. So yes. They probably have a breathing tube. They have a feeding tube. They're going to be, you know, have an IV line. So there's all sorts of things where they are getting continual exposure to phthalates. And I think that um, certain slightly more proactive countries, so even as far back as 1992, Vienna started phasing out phthalates in medical supplies and medical equipment. Um, other countries have followed suit. So things, countries like Norway, the Czech Republic, France, they've all started, you know, saying, look, this is a problem because in our hospitals we are hotlining phthalates into these you know, in these, yeah. into these babies. Yeah. And it's not just in neonate wards, but some hospitals are doing it throughout, but it's not done yet here. And I think that you've got these critical windows of um, development and, a, you know, a beautiful baby that is premature and struggling at the best of times doesn't need to be, you know, sort of supplied <laughs> exogenous phthalates like that. Yeah, that's right. Okay, so not blaming, but I'm just asking, um, are any of these Australian researchers championing this issue? I haven't read anything like that. I've read um, more studies. You know, my favourite, I think if I had to choose where I would live, so many of the wonderful studies do come from the Scandinavian countries. Um, but interesting, like I said, it was Vienna that started that um, awareness. Wow. But no, as yet I haven't read anything in about Australian uh, Australian hospitals and what their future plans are. But I think that, you know, again, with public education and again with that public pressure, then hopefully we can see more and more hospitals choosing to use supplies that are that are phthalate-free. Yeah. When you're talking about these non-branded spray, de- deodorant antiperspirant <laughs> sprays, do roll-ons make a difference or are they? is it in the chemicals so that's in the... I think the... that you'll find with the difference between roll-on and spray is the aluminium. So um, I think the... Um, and I'm not entirely sure, but I'm pretty sure that you inhale a lot more aluminium when you spray than yeah. rather when you roll on. But in terms of phthalates, you're still going to be exposed to them. So anything that has, um, you know, that sort of artificial fragrance with something in to make sure it adheres to your skin, that's where we get that exposure to phthalates. Our exposure comes through three main areas, so either ingestion, inhalation, or dermal contact. So we talk a lot about ingestion in terms of really trying to encourage people to store food in glass or in ceramic, about really trying to encourage patients to you know, not heat things up in plastic ever um, yes. and not use Glad Wrap and not use all those sorts of products, not use plastic water bottles, for example. And then in terms of inhalation, I think a lot of that's understanding that we need to keep really good fresh air coming through. We need to not be using things that, you know, that have that incredibly strong smell. So our shower curtains are cheap plastic raincoats, you know, that sort of thing, yeah. vinyl flooring. And I think that's where it's a really big issue for kids because they're low to the ground and they're exposed to that at a much higher level. And then um, dermal contact, I think that's the biggest one that we see in clinic is people are just covered top to toe in, um, in, in beauty products that contain phthalates. So I feel personally so sad when I see a pregnant woman covered head to toe in fake tan and you can smell that they've got you know, some very strong perfume attached to it to try and cover the smell of fake tan. And oh, I think that okay. poor, that you know, poor baby is just enveloped yeah. in, um, <laughs> in, inside of a woman covered in, in phthalates. So we do a lot about um, just educating them about simple ways that they can start making differences. And um, you try and do it in a non-alarmist way, but um, particularly if the woman's already pregnant. But it, I think just that, that education at that time frame goes on to help them 
learn about how the best way to protect their children as well. Now, this is really important. You made an important point there, non-alarmist, and that that is key because there's nothing worse than inducing stress and over-worry in somebody that it may have an issue, but to make them paranoid about it um, is probably the worst thing that we can do and certainly instill guilt. Um, so yes. what conversations do you have to introduce this sort of issue? Well, so it would depend on who's in front of us. So if it's a couple that aren't pregnant, mm. then I feel I can give them more information to try and help them, you know, direct them into the, you know, safer products and safer alternatives. But often we also inherit into our clinic patients that come in who are already pregnant and want help and nutritional support through their pregnancy. And if the lady is already six weeks pregnant, 10 weeks pregnant, you know, 20 weeks pregnant, and you can tell <laughs> just as they walk in that they're, you know, covered in perfume and they're drinking from their water bottle, then you, you're right. You don't want to alarm them. You don't want to cause concern. So just very gently, we start talking about how it'd be beneficial for their child and also for when the child's inside in utero now, but also when the child's born, that we start lowering exposure to these chemicals. But we certainly don't talk about... Um, conditions like hypospadias or the potential for hypospadias there and then because often by then it's too late. Yeah. So what sort of lead time is best? I mean, obviously, you know, decades, but what sort of lead time <laughs> is um, workable? Well, I like, I do like, it, the ideal would be, I'd like, say, three or four months with every patient to get them, you know, ready and as healthy as they can possibly get um, to try and conceive and therefore have their healthiest offspring. But often couples come to see us after they've been trying for four or five years. And so, you know, and often some of these women are older by this stage. They may have not been older when they started trying, but, you know, all of a sudden they're 39 or 40 and they are not at all interested in not trying for three or four months. So we just very quickly say, right, that's it. Let's minimize exposure from today on. Yeah, yeah. And and I have to say that those are the couples that are so responsive. And it's not... It's not a big deal for them. They're really keen to make the changes and they do it very quickly. Because they're concerned because of their age, is that what you're saying? Because they're concerned for the health of their offspring and because I think they'll do anything to get pregnant. Yeah. So they're a very highly motivated group, which is fantastic. What other routes can infants be exposed to phthalates? So again, um, that's an interesting one. So I think it's quite funny when someone passes you their baby and they smell a perfume. So that's just from mum, you know, from cuddling mum and then completely being um, overwhelmed by mum's perfume and it's all over their skin. Right. I think one area that people forget is also what we wash our children's clothes in. So, you know, when you have a, a you know, one of my son's friends jump into the car and the entire car now smells of a non-brand <laughs> form of um, washing detergent. <laughs> So I think we've got to be really conscious of what we wrap our kids up in, what we're exposing them in, in terms of, um, you know, their bedding, their sheeting, their clothing. And then I think also we've got to have the um, understanding that kids play close to the ground. And um, we, you know, we really want to make sure that the toys that they play with are safe, that the floor that they're being on is safe, and that there's really good ventilation in the housing so that um, we get that, you know, the fresh air blowing everything through as much as possible. Yeah. And also, and that they do talk about, and this is the other thing that um, Dr. Levin brought up in the more recent um, analysis of looking at declining male sperm counts, and he was saying, you know, we've really got a big issue with pesticide exposure as well. Mm. So, I mean, I'm a big advocate, if we can, of trying to make sure that, you know, we eat as much organic food as possible and that young kids are fed as much organic food where it's, you know, affordable. Now that we have genetically modified plants, my issue is the point of genetically modifying them is so that they can handle pesticides. 
And the point of handling pesticides is not for the benefit of that um, plant per se. It's it's to increase yield on the farmer's land by decreasing pests. And so what they do is they can load these plants up and they don't get affected. But the humans who ingest them, well, there you've got a cumulative dose, haven't you? You do. And when you have... When you have, you know, researchers like, you know, someone who's very prominent, like Dr. Levine, actually calling that out, mm. then I think that hopefully it's, you know, it will have people sit up and start paying attention and so going, well, you know, we don't think of pesticides on plants as being potentially detrimental to fetuses in utero. Um, but if that is a potential, then I think it, you know, deserves a lot more research and I think it deserves a lot more attention. Anna, there's one last question I have to ask you, and this is something I know about you. You actually mentor naturopaths in your local area, correct? I do have, a, um, we have a, a group that we that I mentor, and um, at the moment we're very busy and very full. But um, obviously, if anyone is interested, they can give our clinic a call because um, we're always trying to do the best we can to, you know, help as many people on board with understanding this area of um, reproductive health. Anna, I can't thank you enough. It's not just a burgeoning issue, this is a dangerous issue and we have to act now to make sure that we have, as you say, an upward evolutionary spiral. Thank you so much for joining us on FX Medicine today. My pleasure, thanks Andrew. This is FX Medicine, I'm Andrew Whitfield-Cook. The Bioceuticals Integrative Medicine Awards are fast approaching. The Beamers showcase the outstanding talent we have in the Australasian integrative medicine profession and are held in conjunction with the Bioceuticals Research Symposium. To book your ticket to this gala dinner event, visit bioceuticals.com.au and click on the Education tab.